the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer, San Diego. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Well, many of us knew uh, that the day would come, uh, and it turns out the date was Wednesday, February 17th, Ash Wednesday for the Catholics, and that is the day that Rush Limbaugh passed away at the age of 70 years old. Now, um, I want to talk a little bit about that and welcome you. Welcome to the Pro-America Report. We do have a great show today. We will talk with uh, our old friend John Schlafly and uh, also Brett Decker. Catch up on them, uh, with them on things. Uh, but mostly uh, for what you need to know today, I want to talk about Rush Limbaugh. And the Limbaugh family, I've done this before, but the Limbaugh family is an extraordinary family um, with with uh, talented people, um, uh, talented American patriots at every level. Um, I was very close with uh, Judge Steve Limbaugh, who is currently a federal judge down in Cape Girardeau, Missouri. I got to know his father, Steve Limbaugh, judge also. His son, there's a Steve Limbaugh, uh, who is a uh, very creative guy, a musician. But I knew Judge Steve Limbaugh, the uh, the judge in, in Cape Girardeau right now, the best. He was uh, then on the uh, Missouri Supreme Court uh, when I got to know him. A wonderful guy, just an incredible family. And then I knew David Limbaugh, who is David Limbaugh is an incredibly talented attorney, writer himself. He really is a great Christian apologist and has written a number of books that have been very, very influential in my own life on faith. Uh, but even more um, history, uh, the late Phyllis Schlafly, for whom I worked, she was great friends with and worked in the trenches of conservatism with Millie, um, Millie Limbaugh, the mother of Rush Limbaugh. There's some great pictures that we have of Phyllis and, and uh, Mrs. Limbaugh. And just a wonderful family. Rush's uh, family, Rush Limbaugh's family is full of lawyers. And it should be said that Rush and David are brothers, and then Steve Limbaugh and others uh, are, are the sibling, uh, excuse me, cousins. But anyway, extraordinary family. And so um, the power of what Rush Limbaugh did I don't know if it's really able to measure it because he took something that didn't exist, conservative talk radio, and he created it. But here's what people miss, in my opinion. He wasn't really a talk radio host, a conservative talk radio host only. He was entertaining. He was fun to listen to. He had more in common, frankly, with uh, the old uh, radio hosts of the 1940s, 30s, 40s, 50s, um, where they did entertaining shows and they had sound effects and all. Now, Rush didn't do a lot of that. He did some uh, imitations and things and obviously was conservative. But the fact is that he made the fact that he made it um, entertaining the fact that he made uh, the the uh, um, the the um, uh, his shows so entertaining, it, it it was it was that was what the effect was. In other words, he, the, I mean that's why it was so effective. Let me say it better. He um, he was fun, and people wanted to go back and hear him. And even if you didn't like him, it was entertaining. 
So, you know, the history of him, by the way, though, was that he was like a like a shoe salesman. When he first started doing his radio show and he was actually it was being syndicated nationally, he would fly, I think I remember reading, 48 weekends a year in the early days. He would do his show on Friday, get on a plane, and go out on the rubber chicken circuit and give speeches to uh, Republican clubs and conservative clubs and anyone that would host him. And he did that for years and years and years. And he built up this following, the so-called ditto heads that people just came to him to hear what he was saying. And it was extraordinary. It truly was an extraordinary uh, gift and talent. Now, the other part of what he did was he gave conservatives a place where they could laugh and be entertained, but also learn. And at the time, the media, and again, my read on it, I remember listening to him when he was first starting out, but I, throughout the 90s, I was a sporadic listener. Um, but when he started, the, the media was still, we were still under the impression that the media was um, unbiased. And that so in the 70s and 80s, and then when Rush started in the 80s into the 90s, it was, you know, that you would listen to, you'd watch the evening news and they would tell you the truth. And here was Rush telling you on, this, on the uh, radio exactly what it all meant and what put it all together. And he was the first guy that was uh, able to make you feel good about being more conservative because he was taking it apart, you know, t- taking apart the conventional wisdom and breaking it down for you. And of course, then later on, Roger Ailes uh, built on what uh, Rush was doing and all of the talk radio, all the cable news talk radio is simply talk, uh, excuse me, all of the talk, all the cable news talking heads, all the talk, the television shows, the cable shows, Bill O'Reilly, Hannity, Limbaugh, Maddow, um, Ed Schultz back when he used to be on MSNBC, all those, they were all Rush Limbaugh. Radio shows, just different lines, different line of, uh, you know, line of reasoning. In fact, Rush did a, t- a TV show and it didn't take for him. He wasn't, that wasn't his medium. But, but those other people, O'Reilly, O'Reilly does a t- did a radio show on TV. Hannity does a radio show on TV. In fact, Hannity does a radio show. Tucker, Laura Ingram, all of them. And so Roger Ailes stole that model and then put it in place, and it was uh, and very successful. And then MSNBC did the same, and CNBC and CNN, and all the talk, all the talking heads are Rush. All the talking heads on TV are just Rush Limbaugh uh, with whatever angle they have. That's the reality of that. All right, so the only time that I met Rush Limbaugh was an extraordinary uh, instance, and I, I probably should have led with this story, uh, but I'll tell it now and make you make the make the listeners come all the way through to this. Uh, I was the I was practicing law in St. Louis, and I was the president of the. Um, of the Federalist Society, and it was in law practice. And we hosted uh, Justice Antonin Scalia, the late justice, and we hosted him in St. Louis. And we we brought him out for a day, um, and we had him speak. He went to the Red Mass, the Catholic Mass at the uh, cathedral in downtown St. Louis. That was at 11 o'clock. Then we went to a, a bar association luncheon, which was at noon. Then we went over to the Missouri Athletic Club, and we had um, a meeting with Federalist Society student members, the student chapters, and they got a chance to see the justice. And then we were supposed to um, fly down to Cape Girardeau, which is like literally a 10-minute flight, but it was because it was just quicker. And it turns out that there was tornadoes in St. Louis, in Missouri that uh, day. So we got into two Suburbans, and, the, and the, you know, a justice uh, spring Supreme Court Justice, at least at that time, Justice Scalia did, traveled with um, um, federal marshals. And so they were sort of in charge of moving him anywhere. Anyway, we got into two black Suburbans. And uh, as I recall, we went 100 miles an hour and we went down to Cape Girardeau, which is about 80 miles away from St. Louis. And, and as the crow flies and zip, we went down there. And, the, and Justice Scalia gave an incredible speech 
to the uh, on the campus of uh, of Southeast Missouri State University, and it was extraordinary uh, the power of it. It must have been nine thousand people there, and um, and so one of the hosts was Judge Steve Limbaugh. I mentioned earlier my friend who was then on the Missouri Supreme Court, and I and we had this whole thing together. Well, when we were done. We were going to have dinner with Judge Limbaugh, excuse me, with just Justice Scalia and Steve Limbaugh and others, about 22 or three people. And so we went to Steve Limbaugh's house, which is up on a bluff in Cape Girardeau. Cape Girardeau is a beautiful town on the Mississippi River. And so we, we got off the stage first because of the way the thing was set up, me and Justice Scalia and one other person. And we got taken up to the address for Steve Limbaugh's house. And we were early. We were ahead of the crowd because the rest of the crowd was out in the front rows or in the seats. And we were up on the stage. So we got there, and uh, Justice Scalia said, um, uh, well, I guess we better go in, you know, and knock on the door. And so I walked up and knocked on the door, and the door swung back, and it was Rush Limbaugh. And Rush Limbaugh, he didn't care to see me. He was nice, but he said to Justice Scalia, he said, I've always wanted to meet you. I'd never met you. And they, the two of them and I and one other person went out on the back deck there. And for about a half an hour before people got there, it was just Rush and I listening to Scalia. And Rush, uh, Rush spoke, spoke, asked a few questions, as I recall, but he's kind of shy in person. And then the crowd, the people showed up, about 22 or three people, including Governor Blunt, my boss, uh, the governor, um, Peter, Peter Kinder, the lieutenant governor, and others. And um, it was an extraordinary night. Extraordinary. Wonderful. It was really fun. Interesting. Laughing. Scalia is the life of the party. But Rush Limbaugh was almost sweet. He was so sort of not the center of attention socially because it was a lot of his cousins and his brother. David was there and others. When the night was over, and oh, Rush Limbaugh brought all the, the wine. He brought his, well, the wine. He brought tons of wine. Expensive, oh, tons of wine. He brought wine that was expensive, I guess. But as he was leaving, he had a magnum, a very expensive wine, and he tried to give it to Justice Scalia, and he couldn't take it because they can't take big gifts. So the other guy with him uh, took it as a gift. And anyway, that night, Rush Limbaugh flew home from Cape Girardeau to Florida, stopping in D.C. to drop off Justice Scalia. And as they left, I obviously didn't go with them. As they left, um, I just smiled. It was an incredible moment. I watched them walk away because I'd been the host and Justice Scalia thanked me and all. And then they go away. And, and the next day on the radio program, Rush Limbaugh was listening. He said, I was in my hometown last night. I had this extraordinary privilege. We had this great meal. And I flew back. I won't tell you who I was with, but as I flew across the fruited plains, I was with a great American and we talked and it was a, a privilege and on and on. He was a, anyway, an extraordinary family, the Limbaugh's. David is a wonderful brother to his brother, Rush. Uh, we were praying for Catherine, uh, Rush Limbaugh's wife, their whole family, extraordinary family, good, good people. And again, um, as uh, I think Jack Posobiec said on Twitter, uh, you know, Rush used to say, uh, talent on loan from God. Well, he's going back to God, and uh, it's been a good loan. It was a good loan, well used, and uh, what, a, what a life he led, and the good he did in a lot of people's lives. And one of, the, um, one of the things that I'm privileged to have met him, but also to know his family so much. So God bless Rush Limbaugh and his family, and uh, we'll be praying for them, and we'll be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Be back in a moment. 
Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Reports. Time to catch up with John Schlafly. John Schlafly, of course, is the uh, co-author with his brother Andy of the uh, weekly column, the uh, Phyllis Schlafly column. It's called, oh, it's called the uh, Schlafly, got phones ringing, Schlafly Report. And um, it is, this week, the title is GOP Thrives as Trump's Party, available over at townhall.com, our sister site, as well as available archived at phyllisschlafly.com. GOP Thrives as Trump's party. Welcome back, John. How are you? Hi, Ed. Good to talk to you today. Well, before we get to Trump's party, what do you think? What's your best guess? You've been a close observer of Donald Trump for years and years now, and you have some sense of history, uh, whether it's, um, you know, politicians out of office and uh, and candidates who win or lose an election. What do you what you what? Give me some predictions on what Trump could do in the next in the coming months. Well, uh, of course, he, he's been holed up in Mar-a-Lago uh, for the last, what is it, two, three weeks. But yep. uh, uh, And he's not, he was cut out of social media, so we really don't know what's on his mind. But the point of our column is um, the Republican Party is there for Trump. The Republican Party supports Trump. They have not backed off after all the uh, nonsense about the impeachment and poll after poll after poll. And I think I've counted eight now that have been taken since the first of the year. And they show that uh, two thirds of Republicans uh, uh, support uh, Trump. They want him to be the leader of the party. Uh and uh, they do not think he's responsible for any damage that was done to the Capitol on January the 6th, uh, and so forth. And um, Nancy Pelosi is trying, uh, and the Washington Beltway, the swamp, they're trying again and again to try to suppress support for Trump. That's what impeachment was all about. You know, that's what the new... Uh, commission to investigate January 6th is all about. That is what the uh, persistence of the troops, the federal troops that have occupied Washington and have set up barriers around the Capitol and troops everywhere and streets blocked off and everything closed and locked down. That's what that's all about. And it hasn't worked because the people out there in the country uh, as reflected in the polls, as reflected into people who call in to different programs. Uh, Trump's support is rock solid. It has not uh, diminished. And um, I think the nation had better adjust to that fact. And the Republican Party in particular needs to adjust to that fact. Okay, I, I'm, I, I can see that. We're talking with John Schlafly. Again, Schlafly, the, John, the Schlafly Report written with Andy Schlafly is available at townhall.com, also over at phyllisschlafly.com. Uh, I concede that, John, and I, 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 I do that to your comment. But what are his choices? Uh, in other words, is, is President Trump, I don't think he announces he's running for president this next month, right? So is, is it, is he set, do you think he sets up a media company? Some people say that. Uh, here, here's, 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 my, here's my description of his history. Since the 1980s, he has been a major figure 
in the public eye, initially in New York, albeit the center of the world in many ways, and, and in the tabloids and all, and then in the course into the 90s, and then uh, 2000, for about 10 years, he was the number one rated TV star, okay, um, businessman, and then he dominated politics. He's not a shrinking violet. He obviously thrives on it, enjoys it, and is going to do it both as part of who he is and I think what he enjoys, but also the politics. So what what are the possibilities? He is is it likely that he's the um, the the sort of uh, grand old uh, leader of the party, and and everyone comes to kiss his ring in Mar-a-Lago to see if they can be backed? Does he does he actively try to pick the speaker of the house? Uh, does he do media? What's your sense? I mean, what are your you, again? You've observed him closely. Do you have predictions on that? Well, it's too early to handicap 2024, but uh, I do think that uh, Donald Trump needs a platform. Uh, and he will, I believe, will have to build his own platform so that he cannot be canceled by the tech oligarchs in Silicon Valley. Hmm. It's going to take time to do that. I hope he's been working on it because that's got to be done. I'm aiming. And so that he can, we can hear from him mm-hmm. every day. As we did, as we used to. Um, okay, so that's the that's that's all you're going to give me. You think you think Donald Trump uh, runs for president in 2024? If you had to bet, had to bet ten dollars, you got to bet it either way. No, I, I I don't think we. That's too far ahead. We don't know uh, what the landscape will be. We don't know what uh, Mr. Trump's health will be by then. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. the public, I don't think is. You know, the election of Joe Biden was a fluke, I believe. In yeah. many ways, uh, the public is not going to elect a man who is not robust, physically yeah. robust, and able to handle the job. And while Donald Trump certainly is today, I don't know that will be the case four years from now. Well, it's interesting you say that because I made the observation on a different radio interview. I said, um, notice how as they talk about uh, um, that now there, there's a story out that I think Steve Bannon commented on whether uh, Tr- President Trump had some dementia issues. Of course, everybody knows that uh, Joe Biden has been slowed. That's a, a euphemism. So I do think you're right. And, and that may be the best way for the media to try to keep Trump out. I, I don't think the Republican Party will want to nominate a 78 year old, no matter. He has been a workaholic. I don't, I don't dispute it, uh, but I think you're right on that. Uh, but, John, now let me talk about something here. Um, in your column, you refer to Pat Toomey. He's not running for re-election. Richard Burr not running for re-election. Obviously, they're being uh, lambasted. Liz Cheney is running for re-election. In fact, she took a pass on running for Senate. She may come to regret that. And she's got to go back to Wyoming and uh, run for re-election. But, John, in the history of the battle between the uh, so-called kingmakers and the establishment, the, the party um, uh, players and the grassroots, like the Tea Party, for example, generally the powers that be, the money can outspend and outlast the uh, the um, you know the new, the new upstarts. It just tends to happen that way. Um, and you know your your mother, the late Phyllis Schlafly, famously wrote in a choice, not an echo. You know they they stole it from Senator Robert Taft to give it to Eisenhower. It was pretty clear the biggest example, but. Um, or maybe they didn't steal it. Maybe they just negotiated their way uh, through backroom deals. But Liz Cheney, I mean, is there really going to be a a, um, a sort of uh, uh, a, a an accountability for all these folks, or are they going to raise a billion dollars and outlast them? Well, there's no doubt that the 
Swamp and the establishment have the money, and we, we're watching the implosion of the Lincoln Project as a good example of that. Over $100 million they raised. And, um, but, um, you know, there's certainly plenty of money if Liz Cheney wants to run for re-election, but, um, and she was able to parachute into her current position, but, um, you know, we do have elections for the House of Representatives every two years, and uh, already she has, I think, three candidates uh, who have uh, signed up to run against her, but they'll have to c- consolidate to one, I think. And I think if there is one strong candidate, she will be beaten mm-hmm. in, her, in the primary in Wyoming, where, you know, county after county after county in the state of Wyoming has expressed their extreme unhappiness with what she did over the impeachment. Um, I would talk with John Schlafly again. The column is over at uh, townhall.com. The Schlafly Report also available at townhall.com. Uh, John, I, I, I differ with your assessment of Mitch McConnell's um, rant on the Senate floor. I, my assessment is he has, a, after his reelection in, in November, he has a, 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 the only interest he has is in the 49 members of his caucus other than himself. And I think that was cover for those people. You know, if you think about it, there were seven Republicans in the Senate that voted to convict. Um, there probably were 10 more that would have wanted to if they thought they could get away with it. Uh, maybe not 10 more, maybe a few more. But they didn't, obviously, and they couldn't politically. I miss my guess. I think McConnell took a, did that to give cover to them. I don't I don't respect it. I still think it's uh, it was dumb and mistaken. But um, I guess it's emblematic of the people in the swamp, right? They've got to play this game against Trump because why? The donors are on their side? Uh, well, the donors and, uh, you know, Mitch McConnell... Uh, he's, he's, you know, he's got, uh, as you say, 49 other uh, independently elected senators to manage. And it's a tough job. Still, his statement was over the top. And he should, and I think he deserved the, the fierce response that uh, Trump issued yesterday. That was really the first statement we've had from Trump, and obviously he was furious about what McConnell said, and I don't blame him. Uh, and he even, you know, stuck the uh, jab at McConnell for his connections to China. Of course, yeah. that's through yeah. his father-in-law, his wife's father. Of course, Trump appointed uh, yeah, exactly. McConnell's uh, wife uh, to a cabinet position. And, uh, you know, why did Trump do that? Well, um, so, but in any case, um, you know, of course, Trump did make some mistakes on appointments when he was president because he did not come into office with a ready-made uh, group of the of the two thousand people he needed to run the government. He had to find people, and a lot of them uh, did not do a good job for him, and that is part of the problem that he faced. A second term would have been much better, I hope. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that is exactly part of the problem. All right, John. John Schlafly, we got to run. John Schlafly, it's the Schlafly Report. This week's column is called GOP Thrives as Trump's Party, available at townhall.com and also over at phyllisschlafly.com. Thank you, John. We'll talk again next week. (laughs) 
Welcome back. Ed Martin here on a Pro-America Report. Time to check in with Dr. Brett M. Decker, New York Times best-selling author. Uh, he was once a journalist in the Wall Street Journal's Asia Bureau, far, far across the uh, across the world, and also the editorial page editor for the Washington Times. Worked in the uh, White House, uh, or in the, in the Bush administration, say more accurately, during the uh, W. Bush era, and is now a professor at Defiance College. Uh, welcome back, Dr. Decker, and how are you today? You know, it occurred to me, all this stuff going on with China, that last week I forgot to bid you Kung Hai Fat Choi, which is uh, Happy New Year for Happy Chinese New Year, which is Friday. It's the, uh, the Year of the Ox that. now, whatever that, whatever that is, the Year of the Ox. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if that's good or bad. I, I do know. I didn't know it was the Chinese New Year because uh, Joe Biden kindly called up to wish Happy New Year to President Xi. And uh, and President Xi, I don't know if you heard this. It's uh, the readout was incomplete. President Xi said, thank you for wishing me a Happy New Year. We plan to put you on the Chinese new uh, calendar very soon, uh, Joe Biden. And, and Joe, of course, just laughed and chuckled. Ah, uh, anyway, <laughs> that's, not, that's not true if it's being reported. Uh, all right. I did want to ask you about China. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, we were t- discussing off the air. The Americans, uh, Jimmy Carter, boycotted the 1980 Summer Olympics in in the Soviet Union. Big deal. Um, and there is talk right now about how how can we go to Beijing for the 2022 Olympics when we have such a nasty, nasty, uh, brutal communist regime. First of all, what are your thoughts on boycotts? What are your thoughts on this subject? What's what's the reality here? Well, you know, I think it's an important, really important issue, but I don't think anything will ever happen because the International Olympic Committee, the IOC, could care less about human rights. So the last time the the Olympics were in Beijing, which was 2008, I lived I lived in China, in Hong Kong, when the decision was being made where the Olympics were going to be held. And we ran lots of pieces, right? I was working at the Wall Street Journal at the time. We ran lots of pieces out of our office in, in Hong Kong saying, you cannot have the Olympics here. You're sending the wrong message. And the Olympic Committee is, no, no, no. If we engage with them, they'll be better. They'll become part of the you know, law-abiding community of nations and all that kind of thing. But even before they made the decision... China was ramping up their persecution at that time. This is like, say, 2004, when they're making the, the decision on having the 2008 Olympics in Beijing. We ran this piece. It was an extraordinary piece. Um, it ended up getting the Amnesty International Award for Commentary Writing on Human Rights that year. So, uh, wow. A reporter, a reporter, yeah, a reporter, um, uh, discovered that, you know, they the the Chinese when the Olympic Committee would be in Beijing, the Chinese police would go around the capital and round up all the people they thought were undesirable. Now that included, you know, homeless people or something like that. But even more egregiously, and it's a terribly sad story, they would uh, round up kids that uh, had handicaps or had mental disabilities and that kind of thing and throw them in in jail because they didn't want the Olympic Committee to see that Chinese people weren't perfect. A lot of times what you'll hear is people connecting Chinese Olympics to like the 1936 Olympics in in Germany, Nazi Germany. Mm -hmm. And it's a pretty good, the pretty good comparison because the Chinese didn't want anybody to see anybody who is Chinese who wasn't perfect. So um, they they even went so far and it's it's crazy. It's like one of the weird things the Chinese do when the Olympic Committee would come, they would even come and say fall or winter. 
when the trees right. were dead, they would paint, they would spray paint the grass green and put fake leaves on the trees to make it look like it wasn't winter. Because we're like, what? Because winter doesn't happen in the perfect place. But the wow. roundups of people with disabilities, um, one of these kids who had uh, a mental disability um, was beaten to death by the police when he was in custody. He was walking home. I think he was nine years old or something. And as a parent, imagine this, right? He was walking home from school um, and the police just grabbed him and put him in prison and, and police mocking. This is what a brutal, awful place is. They were making fun of him for being mentally handicapped and just beat him to death. And his parents, when he didn't get home from school, were freaking out, going all over, asking the neighbors, asking the police, going to the government. No one said anything. And a few days later, they just dumped this poor kid's body on their front step, just dumped his body on the front steps of these poor parents. So all of this was known and published in the Wall Street Journal before the, the International Olympic Committee named Beijing as the, the, the place for the 2008. So if, if killing kids doesn't pull your heartstrings to, to protest the Olympics or prevent it from being in Beijing, nothing now about how they're treating minorities or anything will make any difference. But what a horrible story. And, and, and that's just what the place is. Uh, we're, we're talking with Dr. Brett M. Decker. So, but uh, but now, what's the what's the practical uh, look? If I tell you that they're slaughtering the Uyghurs, they're persecuting Fulan Gong, they're persecuting Christians, they steal our intellectual property, they kill our people with fentanyl and all that, you'd say, okay, those are our enemies. Let's not let's certainly not send our people over there. But we're obviously not there because we have uh, plenty of uh, of leaders in in private industry as well as in the government in the White House now who are willing to kind of play footsie and be a little hard, maybe not do everything they want. But what? It's kind of a trick box politically, right? I mean, if Joe Biden doesn't uh, boycott the Olympics, everybody says, look at you, you're coddling China, because it is true. You would be going and in in this modern moment. You would be giving them the chance to be legitimate, right? It's a world leader hosting the Olympics. If you don't go, you're making the Chinese mad. You're picking a fight and a lot of Olympic uh, athletes and everyone else gripes and universities gripe and uh, NBC gripes and all. I mean, it is is kind of a trap. Of course, we should point out Jimmy Carter was the one who boycotted the Soviets. I in '84, uh, well, I guess Amer- '84 in '80, the Winter Olympics were in Lake Placid. In '84, um, it was Los Angeles, and I guess the, did the Soviets? I think they did boycott us back. I'll look that up. But I mean, uh, uh, Biden is in a, a trap here in terms of the politics, isn't he? I, you know, I I, I kind of wish it was more of a trap. But I think yeah. I don't know how many people really care. I'm afraid, you know. I mean, I oh, like I, I always tell people, do you know, do the China test when you when you're going shopping. Anything you buy, just flip it over and see if it's made in China, and then try to find something else to replace it. Uh, you know, most of the junk people are buying, especially at Walmart, all comes from China. Nobody cares as long as they save a dollar, you know. And and mm-hmm. I think that's unfortunately, I think that's I think that's where we are. Um, so. I can't imagine that we would end up boycotting the Olympics. Not to say we shouldn't think about it or shouldn't do it. I just don't think I, we're not really a principal country anymore. I don't think so. And I, and I think that's a problem. 
Um, the uh, well, and I, and I just looked it up. Eighty four, the Soviets did boycott us back, and they boycotted the eighty four Olympics, which were sort of famous in L A. because uh, Peter Uberoth was the businessman, and it was pretty glorious success, I think. And of course, you couldn't have told me that we missed the Soviets. I mean, it doesn't as you point, it doesn't matter to us. But I guess your point is, it's not a big enough deal to Americans that uh, Bi- Biden's going to take the um, uh, uh, take the the risk. I guess I don't know. I mean, I, it's going to someone's going to the politics of it is going to be easy to say. Oh my gosh! Why would we send our people to to communist China? Um, I, and I, that's what I wonder where I go. What else about what do you what's your, what's your update on the economy now? We're we're a, a month into the uh, amazingly we're only a month into the administration of uh, Joe Biden. And the economy seems to be relatively stable, right? It hasn't gone into free fall. Um, you know, one thing that made the '84 Olympics the best Olympics ever is that it was okay. centered at the uh, at Los Angeles Coliseum, the home of the uh, USC Trojans. But anyway, oh, there we go. I forgot. Right? There you go. But yeah, that's right. Location, right. Fight on! Uh, fight on! Anyway. Fight on! Fight on! We don't have to get that in there for that's, SoCal. Okay. Yeah. So the, the the I mean, I think you're already seeing the economy just start to hit the wall, right? Oil prices are going crazy. Um, definitely, um, the storm front is hurting because you have refineries closed. So energy prices uh, increasing. And I think it's one, it's just kind of a reminder to Joe Biden and the Democrats, you know, it's not that easy keeping the economy trucking along when you have things happening, mm-hmm. right? Like you look right. at everything that President Trump did with tax and regulatory cuts, the economy was booming. And then out of left field, we get this, this, you know, this Chinese virus that shuts everything down and really changes the outcome of the election one way or the other. Right. I mean, um, so so right. I think now Biden's starting to, 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 to see, um, boy, a lot of these things outside of our hands can really affect us. And this is even before all the crazy things he's going to do um, come into play. Yeah. All right. Dr. Brett M. Decker, thank you as always. I got to run. We're up against the deadline. Uh, We will blame you if we boycott the Olympics or we won't blame you if we don't. Uh, We'll be back. We'll be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Back in a moment. This is the Phyllis Schlafly Report, presenting a daily conservative pro-family perspective since 1983 and continuing the legacy of Phyllis Schlafly. Now here's the president of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, Ed Martin. It's not often that major corporations are willing to take a stand for morality at the expense of their bottom line. So it's important for us to acknowledge companies that do show courage. In 2019, PayPal made headlines for refusing to process payments from the world's largest pornography website. Now, two of the nation's biggest credit card companies are following suit. The website, which I won't name here, was recently exposed in a New York Times article documenting extensive child abuse and non-consensual content throughout the platform. Because these websites are paid by the amount of traffic they have, there is a strong and perverse financial incentive for them to overlook legally questionable content that brings in views. Despite the valiant efforts of those across the political spectrum who fight sexual exploitation, the government would not step in to bring an end to this injustice. That's when PayPal, MasterCard, and Visa saved the day by refusing to work with this website. As soon as MasterCard and Visa severed ties, the smut peddlers became irate. First, they cried about their free speech rights to spread trash. When that didn't work, they promised to change their ways. They removed content that could potentially include exploitation. That reduced the site by 70%, or 10.5 million videos. Yes, you heard that right. 
of the 13.5 million videos once hosted on the world's largest and most profitable pornography website, fully 10.5 million potentially contained child pornography and rape. Even more crazy is the fact that the website announced that they may bring those videos back if they go through some kind of vague verification process. Like a dog returning to its vomit, they can't control themselves. MasterCard, Visa, and PayPal are obviously taking a big financial hit, and America needs to thank them for taking a moral stand against sexual abuse. This courageous tale is a stark reminder that free market capitalism cannot be separated from the moral foundation America was built upon. We must hold corporations just as accountable as individuals when it comes to stopping the scourge of sexual exploitation. Thanks for listening to the Phyllis Schlafly Report. You'll be glad to know the legacy of Phyllis Schlafly continues. Upheld by Ed Martin, president of Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, chairman Helen Marie Taylor, treasurer John Schlafly, a full staff in St. Louis in our nation's capital, and thousands of citizen volunteers, her eagles, across the country. You can be part of that legacy at phyllisschlafly.com. That's phyllisschlafly.com. Welcome back. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Let me finish up with a little message on Rush Limbaugh that may be a little, uh, maybe less common. Um, One of the things that Rush Limbaugh did was made it, um, made it common for conservatives, or at least his listeners, to read. Remember he would talk about his big stack? He had a stack of papers always, and he was always referring to reading. He did write new, uh, bestsellers, of course. He did write a series of bestsellers, which were um, significant. But also, in his later years, he had that Rush Revere series, where it was Rush Revere, and it was going through history. And it was very popular. Very popular. His wife, Catherine, well, that was a big part of what he and um, what he and uh, she did together. They did. They built that up. Very, very popular. Um, very, and I've, I heard him talk about uh, the um, ability of his program, his show and his personality to get people to think about and talk about reading. Now, I've told you before that uh, the late Phyllis Schlafly, for whom I worked, one of her great gifts was writing. Not gifts, one of the great uh, things she did, one of the great uh, outputs she had was writing. And she did a lot of radio, she did TV, but she did writing mostly. And she did a ton of reading. Here's my assertion for you. If you aren't sure if you can be a writer or if you can be a radio host or a speaker publicly using your voice, I'll tell you this, you got to be a reader, You have to become a reader, a reader widely, a reader deeply, a reader critically. You have to be a reader. And I think one of the things, again, I can picture Rush Limbaugh, almost every time I listened to him, he would refer, you know, he'd shake his papers. He'd say, in my previously uh, nicotine-stained hands, I'm holding, and then he would talk about it. And uh, it was, um, that was powerful. That is a powerful thing that he did to motivate people uh, to be a part of the reading. About community of people that read underrated 
the influence of Rush Limbaugh. He made people that agreed with him, that were entertained by him, willing to go and read uh, essays, read books. Of course, he started out, um, I don't know, 15 years, well, 10 years before the Internet exploded. I mean, certainly by the time he uh, was in the last two or three years, he was using the Internet, I mean, reliably a part of a huge part of his life. Although he wasn't a huge social media presence. Mr. Snurdly is on there quite a bit. Uh, but my point is, underrated the power of, uh, of uh, Rush Limbaugh at teaching people to read and making it cool and part of what you're doing to be a reader. Uh, again, will history will uh, bear out and, uh, you know, in God's eye, in God's mind, in God's uh, judgment, we'll see these benefits. And uh, Rush Limbaugh certainly had a huge uh, role to play in people's lives. So just another thought for you, uh, Rush Limbaugh, the Rush Revere series, if you haven't seen them, worth reading. The Rush Revere series I like more than his books, although his books are entertaining too. So rest in peace, Rush Limbaugh. All right, everybody, that's it for today. Thank you for listening. Be back tomorrow. It's Ed Martin. Oh, thank you. So let me say thank you to Noah, our great technical director, Joanna, for booking our show. Back tomorrow. Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Talk to you then. This is the Pro-America Report on The Answer San Diego.